Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Hello, everyone. Thank you for making us a part of the day here on Top Docs Radio. It's C.W. Hall, and thanks for sticking with us. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, as we got started today, very happy to be joined by a couple of experts from the Atlanta area, uh, gentlemen who uh, routinely treat uh, men who are dealing with prostate cancer. And uh, it's a topic I've been looking forward to covering just because from a perspective of incidents, it's something that does happen somewhat commonly, from my understanding, in terms of some of the cancer literature. I've kind of looked at uh, getting ready for the show. Looks like you know some of the st- statistics range from one in six to one in seven men. So obviously, pretty good chance, and particularly the older that we get. Um, so most of us know somebody that's at or around fifty or beyond. So uh, it's going to impact somebody that you know. So I'm very very pleased to be joined by uh, Dr. Peter Rossi from the uh, St. Joseph Radiation Oncology Group. Welcome, Dr. Rossi. Well, thank you. And uh, I also have Dr. James Bennett from Midtown Urology, another expert who focuses a lot of his practice in helping men who are dealing with prostate cancer. So I'm very happy to have you here with us as well. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, very good. And and uh, thank you both for taking part uh, in this program. Uh, we talked about the fact that our physicians who join us are taking time away from a busy practice. Uh, Dr. Bennett came to us straight from a surgery. Um, and, of course, Dr. Rossi has a clinic to run as well. So it's a uh, very, very valuable time. So we're very pleased to get this information straight from the physician. There's a lot of information out there. People like to go on Google and try to diagnose themselves, get their information, and here we're giving you the real deal straight from the experts. So we'll just go ahead and get started. Uh, I'm going to kind of start with you, Dr. Bennett, um, since as a as a man, I'll probably end up seeing you at some point in time and, and uh, either getting screening or maybe I'm starting to develop some symptoms. So if you can, uh, take me through a little bit about the typical experience that you see how does it how does it how do most of your patients who end up learning that they have prostate cancer come to you is it more of a symptomatic issue i'm having some problems whether uh, my my urinary functions are changing or or is it more often do you find these days since awareness has risen a little bit is it a screening uh, issue how do you find out that they have prostate cancer more often than not well you know it's interesting you ask that question because it's actually a combination of both um Screening has played a significant role in making men more aware. But ironically, it's usually the, the, the female in the family that drives the men to come in because they are so used to health care and, and, and preventive maintenance from childhood. Men are always taught, you know, get up and wipe the dirt off and don't cry and just, you know, put a little saliva on it and move on. Women, on the other hand, are, are acclimated from birth that, you know, you, you, you clean yourself this way and you go to your physician once a year. And men are not acclimated in that manner at all. We will rather take care of our cars than take care of our own bodies. So it's a combination of all of those factors that tend to, to bring men in, into the office. And shows like this actually play a very significant role in driving men into, uh, into the physician's office. Obviously, if I can, con- con- you know, figure out that I have prostate cancer and discover it in its earliest stages, 
that's the best situation just because we can either um, have a little bit more conservative management, a little bit less aggressive kind of measures can maybe take care of me or even wait and see from what I've understood through preparation. So what do I do to find out and when should I start looking for prostate cancer ideally? Well, you know, that's the strange thing about this disease. And, and a lot of men, when they come in, uh, they, they will come in for routine check. And if they unfortunately are found to have prostate cancer, the first words are commonly out of their mouths is, Doc, I have no symptoms at all. And the message that I like to tell most men that if you have symptoms of urination and if those symptoms are due to prostate cancer and those symptoms are a decreased force of strain, blood in the urine, getting up three and four times a night, or if you're at the Braves game and you're standing at the urinal and three and four guys come and go and you're still standing there waiting for the water to be turned mm -hmm. on, those are urinary obstructive symptoms. And if those symptoms are due to prostate cancer, you typically you've probably waited too late. Early, treatable, curable prostate cancer generally is not associated with any symptoms at all. And so the message here is, is the earlier, the better, and the, and the best success rate and, and survival over the long period of time. Yeah, in the statistics, it was saying one in seven men will develop prostate cancer, and out of those, one in 36 will die. So obviously, it's, you know, it's a survivable disease. It is a survivable disease. At least but, for most of us. Well, that's true, but, but there is some misconception about when cancer starts. You see, most people think that you develop, you know, one day you're healthy, and the next day you develop diabetes or, or prostate cancer, whatever cancer it is. But the facts are is that most of these diseases start 10, 20, and sometimes 30 years. I'll give you a frightening statistic that will open up your eyes to this disease. One in three men in, in the late teens and early 20s will already have cancerous changes in the prostate. And this has been proven by looking at these young men's tissues under the microscope. And these are precancerous conditions. But something happens around the third and fourth decade in certain men that triggers these precancerous condition to develop into invasive prostate cancer. And those things are ethnicity, being an African-American or having a family history of prostate cancer. And the other thing that tends to push certain guys into that invasive category are things like nutrition. If you have a diet that's a westernized diet, and for those audience that may not know what a westernized diet is, is laden with animal fat. We're talking about the beef, the pork, the fried foods, and surprisingly, even dairy uh, has a lot of animal fat. Mm. And so it's those, it's those kinds of things that even young men need to be cognizant of to keep them from, in that third, fourth, and fifth dec decade, from developing prostate cancer. So, you know, as a urologist, and we're talking about the fact that uh, early discovery is beneficial to your your outcome, mm -hmm. when do you recommend, ideally, that you begin to, you know, because uh, you, 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 most of us are anywhere, there's advertisements that talk about go and get your, your digital exam, for example, um, and most of us are probably going to put that off. I know I Correct. have so far. And it's um, not a computer program either, digital. <laughs> they always think about a computer program. That's right. We're not, we're not, we're not going on the computer for this study. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, the PSA, uh, the blood test that can be done, what point, you know, if, if we're doing things ideally, should we have those types of screening tests done? 
Well, there's a lot of controversy about that, and I'm sure the public has heard all of the controversy about it. And medicine still remains an art. The, uh, the, uh, our national organization, AUA, the American Urological Association, recommends for men that are Caucasian and do not have a family history of prostate cancer that probably the first screenings can be done around the 50th, mid 50th range. But for African Americans or patients with a family history of prostate cancer, uh, they have in fine print in, the, in, the, in those recommendations that these recommendations don't necessarily apply to you. Right. I recommend to African Americans or anyone with a family history of prostate cancer, they probably should start as early as the age of 40. If you have a significant family history, and I have seen that, where every generation of man, men have developed prostate cancer, you may want to consider even starting at the age of 35, particularly if you're in those high-risk groups. Now, should they do both of those studies? Absolutely. You see, that's the other misconception. Guys will tell you, and I'm sure Dr. Rossi will tell you the same thing, they'll come in and say, well, my doctor said my PSA is normal. But then when you put your finger in the rectum and you feel this hard mass back there, then you, it's obvious that the prostate exam is abnormal. And commonly what happens is that the rectal exam will give you a little bit more information sometimes than the PSA because if a cancer is very aggressive, it may forget that it's prostate and it may not produce the amount of PSA it should. And so you need to have both in order to be you know, as close as you can uh, to being sure as to whether you have prostate cancer or not. When you're doing that digital rectal exam, mm -hmm. is it possible to have those types of changes that you can feel? Oh, absolutely. But not yet have changes to your you know, urinary habits or your sexual habits. Those aren't showing up yet, but you can still detect it by, by Co feeling it. Correct. About 75% 75 of prostate cancer is generally occurs what we call the peripheral zone, that part of the prostate you can feel with your finger. Now, sometimes those cancers do not distort the contour of the prostate, but commonly, though, you may feel something that feels like a little small uh, um, marble, or you may even find asymmetry where one side is bigger than the other. And those sort, uh, subtle kinds of changes that occur on the exam may be the thing that helps you to detect early prostate cancer. Okay, that's great information. So now we're, we're talking with Dr. James Bennett and Dr. Peter Rossi, a couple of experts here in the medical community in Atlanta about prostate cancer discovery and then, uh, of course, treatment of the, of the cancer. And so now we've, we've gone through our screening. We've determined that we have some elevated PSA. We've got a, a, a digital rectal exam that's showing that there's some changes there that, that look irregular. So now what? Because I, mean, I understand that some of it may be just kind of let's keep an eye on it. Mm -hmm. Some of it may be obviously we gotta we gotta circle the wagons and get things very aggressive. So how do we kind of determine what we're going to do there? Well, the way I approach prostate cancer, and again, I, I have a lot of respect for Dr. Rossi here. I work with him and his colleagues uh, very commonly. There's never been a study in the history of urology of urology that has proven that one treatment is better than the other and the public really needs to be aware of that now there are a lot of biases out there but there are studies that that in certain groups of men that are essentially equivalent across the board and the difference is is the quality of life and so as men make a decision as to what they want done about that cancer uh, they really need to look at survival. How long am I going to live? 
But the other important thing that sometimes is downplayed is the quality of life. And the quality of life issues that, uh, that may be affected by treating prostate cancer are mainly two things. Urinary incontinence, which is loss of control of water, and impotence or erectile dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Those are things that sometimes are downplayed, not only by my colleagues, but by Dr. Ross's colleagues as well. And a true honest physician uh, should be able to inform patients of all of their options, because some patients can be observed. Uh, and I think all of those options should be presented to patient, and they should be encouraged to do their due diligence and to make sure that they are making an informed decision based upon their own life expectancies and desires. I involve the wives in this decision and as, as many of the family members as I possibly can because I think it's not just the man's disease, it's a family disease because as I alluded to earlier, there are nutritional implications, there are spousal uh, implications in this diagnosis as well as the treatment. So in, you really need to present all of the options and, and, and that is the best way to approach this disease. Yeah, that, that was that you, what you're having to say is very much like what we learned in our roundtable discussion about breast cancer. The, the listeners were very surprised to hear the number of options that they had more or less along each phase of their, their, their treatment, starting with the breast cancer surgeon mm -hmm. to all the way through their radiation treatment course and, and then, of course, their re reconstruction. There were a number of options on that end as well. So uh, it's nice to know that when I am found to have a cancer that I can both have some choices and, and, um, and, and have some input on what's going to happen based on, well, if we go this course, because I remember a, a while back you and I had spoken, Dr. Rossi, about this very topic, and it, it is, it's interesting that you you know echo the, something that he was talking about, Dr. Bennett, and that was uh, the EPIC-26, um, the study that, that, that you, you know, showed me that uh, kind of went into some of the issues that men face after uh, talking about the quality of life because there are, you know, impacts that are going to uh, be seen after a uh, given course of treatment, whether it's aggressive surgical or aggressive radiation, whatever, or a combination of those things, the level of, ex of, a, of impact is felt uh, in a different ways. And, it, and it's interesting that the, the spouses certainly um, were ones that reported higher uh, impacts than the, than the patient themselves. So, you know, when does Dr. Rossi uh, and radiation become involved in this process? Well, I involve radiation from the beginning, to be candid with you, because I, I believe that you, you try to be fair and balanced in your presentation, and, and you need to separate your own personal bias. When I, insert, when I use my own bias, I, I declare it to a patient as a bias. Let's assume for a moment that we're dealing with a patient with localized prostate cancer. Georgia is a, an informed consent state. And so for that patient who has localized prostate cancer, in my mind, there are four options. Doing nothing at all, observation, radical prostatectomy, radiation therapy, and cryotherapy. And those are the four options. And generally, I give them literature regarding all four of those options. Not, not all of those options are going to apply to all of those patients. But I think you have to balance, again, survival versus quality of life because they each have different success rates. They each have different uh, complication rates. And patients need to be made aware of that because, see, I deal with a lot of patients that 
believe in a lot of the old myth. My grandmama said that if you cut me and you expose it to air, the cancer goes everywhere. I mean, that's a myth, but yet there are a lot of our community that believe that. On the other hand, there are other patients that said, Dr. Bennett, I don't want to get that radiation because I heard this and that. My hair falls out on my head. Those are a lot of myths, and so you spend a lot of time dismissing a lot of those myths, and you rely upon good radiation oncology like Dr. Rossi and his team to, to work with the urologists. And I think it's very important that there is good communication and that both people, meaning the treating urologists and in this case the treating radiation oncologists, come up with a customized plan because a lot of time it is indeed a customized plan. Not every treatment is the, should be the same for every patient. Yeah. I would say. Yeah, Dr. Bennett and I, of course, known each other a long time. We practice very much in the same way. Um, it's very multidisciplinary from the beginning. Um, you're involving the patient, the entire family, and we go about it the same way. And we offer each other's the uh, we offer the opportunity for the patient to see everybody up front because that decision is critical and it's the patient's decision. Um, but we'll go through these these risks, these risks, you know, the background risks, who the patient is kind of their whole body, um, how it all uh, put together that they're there in front of you. And then we have data after that. We have our own clinical exam. We have pathologic reports. We have radiologic reports. And then we talk about the evidence and the quality of life. And we offer, we represent these tools. I'm a radiation oncologist, so I do things like brachytherapy or radiotherapy. But um, it is as important that I know what Dr. Bennett offers and what we can offer together and all the things that are within the standard of care because at the end of the day, it's the informed consent. It's, it, the, the decision is the patient, and our job is to deliver this as best as possible and then help them along in that decision-making process. And so sometimes it, some patients have less choices than others. Some mm -hmm. pa patients have many choices, and it depends on the risk of disease at the end of the day. But um, it, it starts with a conversation, is active surveillance appropriate? And it goes on to, well, if we are going to do intervention, what is the benefit for you? And what is that, what's the consequence of that benefit? Mm -hmm. And Dr. Ben and I believe strongly that you, you, um, we're, it is multidisciplinary. And mm -hmm. sometimes they need everything. And that we're prepared for that scenario as well. You have to be prepared for the success and for the failure of our of our tools of our therapy. And so it's a long. It's you start at the beginning and building that relationship because it can be a very long relationship. So if I if I get discovered to you know an exam that shows that I've got you know probable cancer or or we definitely have it, mm -hmm. is there a procedure that you're going to do that's going to do uh, a staging or a type of cancer, whether you're going to do a biopsy of some sort that's you know, marginally invasive or minimally invasive, and then I come to you, Dr. Rossi, with that information in hand? Is that kind of how it flows? Uh, yeah, I'd be, uh, well, both answering that. You, you come in, um, and this is where the conversation about the controversy mm -hmm. of screening goes, but men come in and say, well, what is my risk for prostate cancer? And then we base that off that clinical exam, the PSA, their family history, their mm -hmm. ethnicity, where they were born and raised, whether it was Western or otherwise. And we say, okay, you know, these are concerning. 
And um, the gold standard here is to get a biopsy. And this is a transrectal ultrasound-guided biopsy that Dr. Bennett does. But that's a step of informed consent where he says to him, well, this is the benefit and this is the potential risk. And usually patients are diagnosed and have already talked to Dr. Bennett just on the results of that biopsy before he involves uh, um, someone like me. But then um, that's that's when I would get involved. But that is already a decision point that you've made. And sometimes it's very clear cut. You might feel just a grossly abnormal prostate and a guy that's already high risk just based on their characteristics, um, you know, their family history. And then you um, you see a PSA that's grossly abnormal. Um, like Dr. Bennett was saying, very low PSAs can be abnormal. PSAs less than one can be abnormal. This 4 or 2.3 or 6 mm-hmm. or 10 cutoffs are what we use just to make better decisions for patients, mm-hmm. but it is an art. And uh, so once you've gotten to that point where you say, okay, we're going to do a biopsy, still patients may go through a biopsy without a diagnosis. And that's, I mean, that's favorable. We've learned more at that point, but mm-hmm. um, we have to follow that person very closely as well. We're talking with Dr. Peter Rossi of Emory St. Joseph Hospital Radiation Oncology and uh, Dr. James Bennett of Midtown Urology. And we're kind of getting into the multi-specialty approach now that's involved, much like in breast cancer and prostate cancer, it's much the same way. Uh, it would have been great if we were able to uh, the clinic schedules just didn't work out for our medical oncologists because obviously they're uh, a part of this equation as well because some of those gentlemen or or at least a high number perhaps may end up having some measure of uh, of medical oncology chemotherapy or something similar um, and, and if you have the opportunity we can talk a little bit at least a bit about that component uh, as you're familiar with it but um, you know I I understand from our conversation a while back Dr. Rossi that when I do get to you and radiation is one of the measures that could treat my particular cancer there's still even within the, the field of radiation on oncology there's a couple or two or three different ways that you can treat me with radiation for my prostate cancer can you talk a little bit about what those are and kind of what they mean for the patient uh, sure and and, you know, um, it is multidisciplinary, and as much as I would talk about um, my radiotherapy techniques, we are talking about surgery and cryotherapy. And in my field is radiotherapy. It involves two basic um, technical tools, and one is what we call brachytherapy, which is placement of radiotherapy inside the body or into the prostate in this case, or, radi- or common teletherapy or, or radiation from away from the body, which is external beam radiotherapy. So there's a few kinds of brachytherapies, and there's a few kinds of external beam radiotherapies that we utilize. And this, the kinds of brachytherapies we utilize are what we'd call low-dose rate permanent seeds, um, something like palladium or iodine or cesium that Dr. Bennett and I commonly use, or another technique that's called high-dose rate, which is more of a temporary internal radiotherapy. So two common internal radiations. And then the common external beam radiotherapies are what we commonly use in, in, in Dr. Bennett's and my practice is photon therapy, which is a very advanced, we call it intensity modulated radiotherapy or volumetric modulated arc therapy. It's, it's the most technically advanced photon therapy today or proton therapy which is another form of external beam radiotherapy that is used for prostate cancer. So those are the tools that I oversee in accompaniment with Dr. Bennett as we approach a patient. And those are, you know, you, you, can, you use them individually in some patients, and you use them together in patients perhaps with more advanced disease that have higher risk of disease outside the prostate. So 
Um, it's 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 dependent on a mon- many issues what a patient's final prescription may be. I'm kind of curious. I mean, it, it's surprising to me. Even you know, I'm I was thinking you know one or two different types of radiation, and you know you you named several right there just for my prostate cancer treatment. Um, and so it's yet a, yet again, I think that our listeners will be surprised to find that there are a number of choices that they're going to have in, in a given you know disease state like prostate cancer and that they can truly have a, a fair measure of input. And it's kind of intriguing to see how they go through that process uh, of deciding, um, you know, based on potential risks after for, you know, because each one could potentially affect like sexual function, for example, after uh, to a different measure than, mm-hmm. than another. And, and uh, one may be very concrete or at least nearly so in its, in its success rate in treating the cancer, but yet may bring with it some higher risk for, you know, some of the sexual challenges that may affect my quality of life down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's really kind of intriguing. I mean, and I, I assume that, you know, how does it flow for the patient? Do they, do you go through all of this, um, your, your different types of treatment options, uh, go over the, the potential risks that they may face or the challenges that, that may come with that treatment type, and then they go home and, and have some period of time that they kind of talk it over? How does that flow for the patient from a time perspective? Well, yeah, and you have to realize this is all based on the aggressiveness of their cancer. There's, there's, you know, there's maybe a, a minority of guys that present that we're encouraging them to make decisions sooner than later, mm-hmm. okay? But there's also a... Actually, a large percentage of patients that active surveillance is just as valid in the immediate future as an intervention. And so that's where Dr. Bennett and I would say, okay, you know, you have the surgical option, you have the seed option, you have the radiation option, um, you have the cryotherapy option, but it's really time for you to kind of look at this. And um, we're here to help you through it. And they may visit with us several times Mm -hmm. um, with various members of their family trying to figure it out. And um, there's many other variables as well. It's the, you know, you you may have a 30-year-old or a Mm 40-year-old. You have working gentlemen. It may be an 80-year-old retired gentleman that has a lot of time on his hand. There's beliefs. You may have a a person that had uh, radiation exposure in the past or has beliefs about radiation or beliefs about surgery or other kind of interventions. And that's all, you know, this is a part of getting to know the patient and understanding what they value. So we value sexual function very highly. Um, We value our urinary function very highly. But there are many other things we value, and you have to, every patient, we, we really allow a lot of opportunity to talk about these things because at the end of the day, um, those values will come into play as whether they're happy or not with the outcome, whether or not you cured their disease. What's the what's kind of the timeline for me? I mean, how does it tend to flow? Obviously, I you know I, I meet with my urologist, and that's you know a, a vital function in terms of determining what kind of cancer I have, and I assume you're probably doing... The majority of the surgeries, uh, I know there's surgical oncologists out there, but I presume that if I need surgery, you're probably going to be doing it for me. Correct. Um, and, you know, if I do need radiation and from a, from a time perspective, I mean, how does the course of treatment tend to flow? And how often am I coming for, for treatment for radiation therapy for, for my prostate cancer? How long does it take? And kind of what's that, what's that time like? Yeah, so um, they are different, surgery and radiation, and it's very different, the couple different kinds of radiation, the internal radiation or the external radiation. And there's a lot of time that goes between when a patient 
perhaps gets diagnosed and perhaps starts treatment and makes a decision. But that's, you know, Dr. Ben and I and one of my partners works really closely with him at Midtown. We're accessible to each other so we, you know, so if a patient says, well, I want to see a radiation oncologist to talk about it or I want to see a urologist, usually we can, we accommodate that very quickly Mm -hmm. because, um, and assess their anxiety, assess what their needs are. But once a patient has made a decision, say, in the, in the, in going towards radiotherapy, when we do internal radiation, it's often just a one-time visit. It takes one or two visits before that. We schedule an operating um, room time or a time in an ambulatory surgical clinic where Dr. Ben and myself would both arrive. Um, we arrive with a plan, and we carry out that plan. And usually the operative experience, anesthesia time, is, is maybe 45 minutes, mm-hmm. sometimes less, sometimes just a bit more and patients go home the same day. So that's a brachytherapy experience that a patient would go through. The external beam radiotherapy is much different than that. It's where x-rays are being introduced from outside the body, targeted towards inside the body, and probably the most advanced way to do that is when we put little targets inside the prostate, gold markers. So Dr. Bennett would put little targets for me inside a prostate. I would use advanced imaging to know where that is. And then a patient would go through perhaps an eight-week course of external beam radiotherapy where um, on a daily basis, they're coming in to see me at a set time. Um, My team takes them in and they're back in their car in about 30 minutes. And in time, in that period, they get image, they get they get positioned, they get treated, and they're on their way. And that's a scenario where really um, it has very Im- little impact on their daily life, but they have to be, so, so to speak, boots on the ground for two months to go through that, whereas the logistics of surgery or, say, seed therapy or cryotherapy is different because it's more of a one-time event, and then you're off to the same surveillance protocol of monitoring the patient, monitoring the PSA for the rest of their life. But let me add now, Radiation therapy, and I know the, the, the myths out there about radiation. Radiation has changed tremendously over the last 20 to 30 years. Uh, I remember coming through Emory in the, in, the, in the early 80s where we saw a lot of side effects from the radiation. But uh, Dr. Rossi and other radiation oncologists around the country, but particularly here at Emory, uh, have done a tremendous job of minimizing uh, the side effects from the radiation, those little markers uh, that uh, that he's talking about sort of focus, helps them focus to being right where they need it to be and not exposed out of the organs. So as a urologist who tend to deal with a lot of the side effects. Right, I'm coming back to you. After, coming back yes. to me, yeah. I am so appreciative of the communication uh, that we now have and, and the quality of the, of the work that the current radiation oncologists do. But I do think that that collaboration is so important in terms of the ultimate outcome of the patient. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really impressed to, you know, hear about, you know, how closely, and I'm not really surprised just because I believe that in, in you know, obviously in cancer treatment, there's going to be probably a surgical element for many or most of those people as well as uh, chemotherapy and radiation. And, and so it's obviously going to require a team of doctors that work closely together frequently mm-hmm. that can have each other on a cell phone and, you know, talk back and forth very quickly. Um, and, and obviously that holds true here very much for, for the man dealing with prostate cancer. Um, I'm curious. One of the things that um, that I hear about, you know, both from that we've done a patient focus, for example, for our, pro, our our breast cancer group, uh, we'll probably do the same for for our men uh, as well, where we're talking to patients about their experience. But 
one of the things that I've heard both the physicians talk about as well as patients, and that is getting second opinions as they're dealing with a, a diagnosis that's as significant and life-affecting as a cancer diagnosis. And so from your perspective, as pro- professionals and physicians who are going to be dealing with this patient who's newly diagnosed, you're going to go over their diagnosis and what what the cancer is presenting as and the treatment options you would recommend. But how do you handle or how do you recommend people follow up for a second opinion, just you know, just so that they can be confident that what they're doing is the right thing. I mean, how do you handle that? I'm sure you're a second opinion for many patients as well. So, well, let, let me start because usually that question comes to me first. Uh, you know, I, I'm the kind of urologist that uh, that believe that if you're honest and you're straightforward and you inform patient. Uh, you can go to the White House with that information because I'm not going to mislead people. I think that it is wrong to mislead people. I personally treat patients like they're family members, like, as though you are my father, and this is the recommendation I make with I would make to my father. So it starts with making sure you have that report, Dr. Rossi. You heard Dr. Rossi and I talk about the art of medicine. The art of medicine entails all of those things, the rapport with the patient, the communication with the patient. Because at the end of the day, if the outcome is not quite desirable as you both thought or that there are more side effects, if you have that rapport, the patients understand that because they have that rapport. Mm-hmm. So if a patient comes to me and says, Dr. Ben, I want my records. I want to go talk to Dr. X, Y, and Z. Here they are. Go talk with them. And so you're, and I have no problems with that, and I'm sure Dr. Rossi doesn't either because we believe in quality based upon evidence-based medicine. And as long as you adhere to those, thing, those things, then you usually are going to come out on the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it, it comes up commonly in... You know, it's it's not our journey. It's the patient's journey, and they have to have this um, comfort level at the end. We know what we provide to our Atlanta community, to our Georgia community. Um, we are doing medicine at the very highest level we possibly can. We sit at the same table as every other uh, great cancer center in the United States and internationally. Um, we have the same qualifications we both have clinical trials, mm-hmm. and that's a step, uh, you know, to, to demonstrate that quality. And I think patients that stick with us, you know, they, they, they of course, have that comfort in us. But it's, it isn't um, our journey at the end of the day. Um, some patients are, um, you know, they, they need to have more conversations um, before making a final decision, and you can't stand in the way of that. No, absolutely. That's great. And you know, you mentioned your academic work, and that was something I was going to ask you, since obviously both of you are um, quite accomplished as authors of a variety of scientific uh, articles on the topic of prostate cancer treatment. So, you know, anything going on right now in the study of prostate cancer treatment uh, that, that uh, is exciting and, and promising that, uh, that might be worth mentioning to the audience? Well, I'll take the spin at it first. I, I think there are a lot of exciting things, both on the diagnostic side as well as on the treatment side. Uh, as a urologist, it may be blasphemy for me to say this, but I do think we, as urologists and sometimes radiation oncologists, we overtreat prostate cancer. And I, and I do believe that we have to do a better job of educating our patients to make sure they're making the right decision for themselves. So much there's there's a lot of attention now toward again doing active surveillance on the appropriate patients but also doing more 
focal kinds of therapy, like with the, the work that Dr. Rossi is doing. Uh, there are many investigational trials that, uh, that are looking at investigational tools that will further decrease uh, the morbidity of the side effects associated with it. On the diagnostic side, there are exciting uh, uh, new diagnostic techniques where we're uh, borrowing technologies like the MRI for men that have had multiple uh, uh, biopsies and they've come up negative, but yet the PSAs remain elevated. There's a relatively new test that's approved that's called the PCA3 that actually looks at a component in the urine and tells you whether there's a high probability or low probability on a subsequent biopsy that is going to be positive. And then when you combine that with the technology technology of the MRI where they can identify specific areas in the prostate that, sh that is concerning such that that information is passed on to the urologist such that when he does do that repeat biopsy, he can focus the biopsy on that area. And we've been able to detect up to 40, between 40 and 50 percent of those men who have negative, who've had negative biopsies in the past. Now we've been able to find many of those cancers because typically many of them are on the top side of the prostate rather on the bottom side of the prostate. We've been talking with Dr. James Bennett of Midtown Urology and Dr. Peter Rossi of Emory St. Joseph Hospital's Radiation Oncology. What about in the radiation oncology sector, any kind of developments that uh, either are in the works or recently discovered that, uh, that, that look promising in terms of the way you do what you do there in radiation? Um, so right now, just I, I guess very specifically, we have very interesting studies on novel imaging. So when people have an elevated PSA, perhaps, and we have other imaging studies that are negative, it's perplexing to us. We're, we're a little bit behind. Why do we have an elevated PSA, but we can't see it? And so one real promising study right now is this PET-FACBC study. So it's using PET technology, if you know what that is. It, it's using um, a substrate that gets picked up by cancer and then imaging it. And that has been, um, that it, it's been a very promising program. We have NIH studies, um, uh, uh, sponsored studies in support of that, and we're enrolling men in very difficult cases where the PSA perhaps has been changing, but we can't detect a problem otherwise. Um, we have studies with guys with low-risk prostate cancer using more shortened course of radiotherapy. So it's investigational, and that's why it's on clinical study, but we can treat a prostate cancer in 5 or 12 fractions versus a conventional 40 fractions that you would do with photons or protons conventionally. And that's, that's open to patients with lower risk disease. Um, we have studies in the, with guys with more advanced disease um, questioning, well, what's the role of hormonal therapy? It's very proven in gentlemen with higher risk disease that hormone therapy, hormone suppression therapy specifically, plays a role in the ultimate outcome, improving, in some instances, survival of patients, which is, is it should never be forgotten. But in maybe less advanced cases, the, what, what the role may be of a shorter course of radiotherapy. Um, and in more high-risk patients are the highest-risk patients that we see. We're integrating novel agents earlier in the course of their therapy. So 
whereas we might do surgery or radiation or radiation and hormones, what is a novel agent like, say, enzalotamide or a, a newer FDA-approved agent that's only for patients with metastatic disease or sp- disease that spread from the prostate to other areas of the body? What if we integrate this sooner in the, in, in the body? And these are part of our, our kind of our comprehensive program as we have it right now. The ideas from active surveillance all the way through to the most dangerous and life-threatening situations that when we other tr- that we have something to offer in case something else has failed or a patient is looking for a very novel approach that may be promising that's that's really uh, uh, impressive that you know the, you know the things that you're doing now are allowing you to maybe find a, 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 a the least aggressive measure necessary that would prevent my my disease from progressing or, or eradicating it um, and yet leaving the door open for you know should should that not be significant or, or, or sufficient enough to stop my disease that then you still have options coming down the road so I, I, I think that that's great to know that we're looking to try and see how little can we do and achieve the the goal and still have options that we can use down the road. Now, I'm always amazed. I do this show every week, and I'm always amazed at how fast our time goes because our topics are very interesting um, and lots of information to cover. And, and before we do run out of time, I, was, I always like to try to leave with a, a you know, particular point or two from our guest to, you know, just to drive something home. So, you know, I'll start with you, Dr. Bennett. I mean, if there's a, a point or two that you really wish that the listener could really take away um, from this so that either they as themselves a, a potential prostate cancer patient or somebody that they care about, what would, you, what would you say to them before we jump off the air? What I would say to them is that nutrition plays as a very important role in not just prostate cancer but all cancer in, in most diseases. And don't downplay the significance of nutrition and starting that nutritional intervention as early as elementary school. Um, nutrition can enhance whatever Dr. Rossi, whatever I do. Take the example of someone with lung cancer and and they've lost a lung because of lung cancer and then they continue to smoke. What do you think is going to happen? They're going to get a lung cancer in the other lung. So it follows then that if someone who is at high risk continues to have the same diet, continues to be obese, I don't care what Dr. Rossi does or what I do, they're going to fail that therapy. So the moral of my uh, ending statement would be is to get your nutritional status in order and try to stay as active and physically fit as you possibly can because those things will enhance your immune system, which will then make the work of Dr. Rossi and the work of me of much, much better. Ah. I agree 100%. It's a big part of every conversation we have because even if a guy is 60 or 70, they have to be in cancer prevention mode the rest of their life. And the first thing they ask is, what can I do for my son or my family? The first thing to talk about is, well, these are things we know that help prevent cancer. And people come in with an idea like, we're not interested in this. We actually, it's the most important thing out there. It is very hard to convince patients of the importance of it. We're looking for a magic bullet, but it's a lifestyle. I'm here. I want you and to fix it for me. We have, and I got to do have homework? S- we have studied so many 
nutraceuticals, say like selenium, vitamin E and stuff, and it comes down to inflammation in the immune system, it's not going to be that one thing. We know, um, just very specifically, we know from a prevention study where men developed prostate cancer and had surgery or radiation that just the guys that exercised two and a half hours a week, so they were non-sedentary versus the sedentary folks, they prevented their risk of recurrence of prostate cancer by a magnitude of 30% or more. That's stronger than any agent we have after treatment for cure. And uh, if you, you combine that with obesity and perhaps a Mediterranean diet, they think the magnitude of benefit might be as high as a 60% reduction in the risk of recurrent prostate cancer. So we have tools, but you're, you are a part of this process of keeping yourself free of disease long term, and we have to educate you on that as much as possible, and it's good for your family too. That's great, and and I am sure that uh, along the way you're recommended the gentlemen if they do learn that they have prostate cancer. I know that Emory has some support services for patients who are undergoing prostate cancer just as they do for the breast cancer and others. So uh, that's an excellent resource for them available. If if we want to get a hold of you, um, I know that you both have website preferen- uh, presences, so can you talk a little bit about how to get in touch with you, how we can find out more information about your individual practices? My practice is Midtown Urology. I am a part of Emory Healthcare and proud to be, I will say. Uh, my office number is 404-881-0966. Our uh, website is midtown, uh, midtown-urology.com. Okay. And do you, and I know Brandon asked you about Twitter going on. Do you have a Facebook page? At I point? do, but I'm not one of those social media person. And certainly, if they call my office, my my office okay. manager will get we'll, it. We'll too. track you down on Facebook Please. that way, uh, so that if one of our listeners that's following us on our on our Facebook or Twitter page, they can get to you. And we get do have a Facebook there. page. Very I good. We'll link up with you there. How about you, Doctor Rossi? So I'm at Emory St. Joseph Hospital and. In the radiation oncology department, we have a multidisciplinary prostate cancer program. Uh, number is 678-843-7004. Um, and georgiaprostatecancer.org, Winship Cancer Institute, Dr. Bennett and I are both represented on there. A lot of the information we talked about is on there. But um, really, uh, there's several, if people are having difficulty, uh, 678-843-7004, Dr. Bennett's number, that's a very direct way to get a hold of us. Excellent. Thank you both for uh, taking time out of your busy days. Your time is ex- extremely valuable, and I, I very much appreciate you being willing to come and share this important information with our Top Docs Radio listeners. If you're not linked up with uh, Top Docs Radio on uh Social media, you can get us on Twitter at TopDocs on BRX, Facebook.com slash TopDocs on BRX. And then, of course, if you're somebody that's dealing with uh, issues with a wound that's not healing, you can get with uh, the program that I'm with on a daily basis when I'm not on the mic, and that's Hyperbreak Physicians of Georgia. That website is HBOMDGA.com. And then we're also on Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA.com. Thank you all for making us a part of your day today. And please share this one with uh, somebody that you know because it's probably going to help somebody that you care about. We'll see you all next week. 